An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Welcome to the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training Cold War podcast series. I'm your host, Sumaya Ishrat. You can find the oral histories from today's podcast at adst.org. Go online to learn more. We are grateful for the continuing member support that makes this podcast possible. Join us to work together preserving the experiences of America's diplomats. Fifteen years ago, into the Cold War, after confrontations in Korea and Iran, the United States faces its new front line in the Western Hemisphere. There were concerns over Soviet influence making its way into the Americas as many countries experienced revolutions and changes in leadership, the world became less stable. These new states were more vulnerable to external forces that could take advantage of internal political conflicts and popular movements. The question became, which global superpower would exert the most influence? The United States had to figure out how they would address these movements in the newly developing countries. As the Cold War descended upon the Western Hemisphere, a revolution in Cuba would lead to security concerns for the United States. Castro, upset by earlier U.S. support for Batista, rejected U.S. overtures of support and renationalized U.S. owned property in Cuba. In response, the Eisenhower administration froze all Cuban assets and strengthened an embargo of the island nation. Here is Alfred Joseph White recalling the claims of a custom officer who was adamant about Castro's future relationship with the United States. This fellow was there. He struck me as a very sensible, down-to-earth person. He didn't strike me as someone who was ideologically driven. He claimed to have his own contacts in Cuba, which he said were very good. And he said, don't believe for a moment, this man is just a harmless revolutionary. He is a hardcore Bolshevik, and he will be a disaster for the United States in power. My recollection is that the administration, that was Eisenhower, made a bona fide effort to get along with Fidel at first. In fact, I think Fidel was even invited up to Washington at one point, if I'm not mistaken. I think the administration at first welcomed his taking power. We made a real effort to get along with Fidel. So I think we did hold a hand out to Fidel, and I think he cast it aside. As Castro came into power, he first relied on former members of Bautista government. However, as he solidified his control over Cuba, he began to replace many of his Bautista's old guard. Convinced by Che Guevara and Raul Castro, he moved toward communism. Here is John F. Corral, split with an actor's voice, describing the transition and transformation of the Cuban government under Castro. Well, when Castro came into power, everybody thought he was going to be a very good boy. He wasn't a good boy at all. It only took about four months before Che Guevara and his brother Raul had him moving very quickly. Castro's brother Raul, not Che's brother, no, Castro's brother Raul, who was a really dedicated communist, I think Castro was not that dedicated, but he did not care for the United States, and probably that had a lot to do with his feelings. His appointments at first were communists, 
but when they found out what was happening, many of them left. Some of them were executed later on, and some of them came over to Miami. As you know, Castro was supported by a great many intellectuals, by the professional class, and when they realized what was happening, then there was a total migration of that group of people over to Miami. Preceding him had been the Baticianos, who knew that for them, the game was up. And then, later on, was when the Mariel people came in. So, we had three great waves of Cubans coming into Miami. With his hand forced by the embargo, he turned to the Soviet Union to supply his island nation. In response, the Central Intelligence Agency crafted an operation to remove Castro from power, known as the Bay of Pigs. As a result of poor execution and loss of initiative, the Bay of Pigs failed. Here is Philip Murill discussing a controversial memo that laid out the potential pitfalls of this operation. If Castro became a real military problem, for that meaning of floating aircraft carrier, military, Russian stuff there, then we could always blockade the island. And that this mission was doomed to failure because it didn't understand anything about how wars work and stemmed out of a false, hard-boiled realism. The exercise then takes place. It is a disaster. I don't have to repeat for this thing, the disaster. Nobody in Bowles' office ever leaked that memo. But Bobby Kennedy decided that since Bowles had opposed the invasion and that Bowles had been right, that everybody who said the invasion was a mistake was an emissary of Bowles in some way, or extension of Bowles in some way. And he savaged Bowles over this memorandum. In spite of what the memo outlined, the operation was executed. Here is Philip Murill, split with an actor's voice, explaining the reaction of President John F. Kennedy. The president was in an uproar over what the CIA had done to him, over how he had been blindsided. Ellie Abel's book on this is as good as you can get. He did it right. The reason the president felt so strongly was that the agency leaders had counted on the landing to force the president to commit really significant American air power. And of course, we all know the president decided not to do so. The agency had foreseen that such a decision would be required under pressure but had not made it clear to the president, he had every justification for anger. Following the Bay of Pigs invasion, the United States conducted numerous reconnaissance flights over Cuba, which detected offensive missile installations. With the Soviet Union's placement of missiles in Cuba, it became clear that the United States would face an all-out nuclear war. Here's William McAfee, split with an actor's voice, describing his involvement in the detection of the missile installations. We had received a steady flow of reports over many months about offensive missiles being installed in Cuba, and they all proved to be false, so that the community was naturally skeptical about such reports. Also, there was a mindset that the Soviets would not take such a risk. A special national intelligence estimate of September 19, uh, 1962, concluded that the Soviet buildup was primarily for political purposes to strengthen the communist regime and its ability to defend itself. It discounted the possibility of either a submarine base being established or IRBMs being installed as incompatible with Soviet practice and policy. Mac Bundy, in a, in a later meeting with McCone, the DCI, who believed the Soviets were installing an offensive threat, dismissed the idea of an offensive threat as incompatible with Soviet worldwide policy. The Overhead Committee, Committee on Overhead Reconnaissance, planned the missions. The flight that detected it was, I think, on October 13th or 14th. Since 1960. Yes. There had not been a flight for six weeks. And the history of that was a, became a very controversial item. In between that period, 
there was a meeting of senior officials, and CIA always contended that Dean Rusk put his hand up on the map and said, I don't want any flights west of this line. And it was precisely west of the line that the Soviets were installing their missiles. I remember a clandestine service report telling of a visitor to Cuba who woke up at night to rumbling and looked out his hotel window and saw an enormous missile going by on a truck. He got out of Cuba as soon as he could. Sam Halpern, a CIA operator with whom we had long and very profitable relations, always claimed, correctly I think, that given a short time, the clandestine service would have reported the missile sites, but by then they might have been operational. I was called out to a meeting on the 16th and we were shown the pictures of the missile sites and told the president was being briefed simultaneously. Of course, reconnaissance was immediately stepped up, both U-2 overflights and later lower level flights. October 16, 1962 was the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis. What would later be deemed the height of the Cold War, this confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union lasted 13 days. Here is Frank Perez split with an actor's voice describing his involvement with Air Force intelligence during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes, I was caught up in the Cuban Missile Crisis. One day I was called to meet with my colleagues on the Joint Atomic Energy Intelligence Committee in the Pentagon. We were showing a series of photographs and were asked to identify what we saw. With little hesitation, we identified what seemed to us to be Soviet SS-4 and SS-5 ballistic missiles, which respectively were of medium and intermediate range. We were then told that those photographs had been taken over Cuba. That evening, the committee met at downtown facility to uh, review incoming photography and intelligence. We were charged with preparing a report for the president's morning brief. We met this way for about five nights. My wife could not understand why I was working all day, and then in the evening until three or four in the morning, it was not until President Kenny addressed the American people on the crisis that my wife understood what was going on. Our most depressing task had been to determine if the missiles had been mated with their nuclear warheads. The photographic and other evidence was ambiguous, but we had to assume that the warheads had accompanied the missiles. Information since the end of the Cold War has confirmed that the nuclear warheads were in Cuba, and that also some tactical nukes had been deployed as well. Though the missile crisis took place in the Western Hemisphere, the tensions were felt internationally. Ambassador George Quincy Lumsden was stationed in Bonn, Germany, when he received news of the crisis. And here we were in Bonn. My goodness, the Fulda Gap was only 115 miles away, and we know that there are 58 Russian armored divisions over there. My goodness, what is going to happen? Of course, most of us didn't really have a clue as to what was going on, that they were meeting at the, who was it, Walt Rostow was meeting the Russian at the Yangjin Palace mm -hmm. restaurant in Connecticut and Porter yeah. and defusing this thing. But there was a tremendous amount of anxiety, simply from at the staff level at which I was because of the lack of knowledge and we were getting most of the information from the newspapers. Mm -hmm. Like that, we weren't getting the cables that counted, they were all no disk no, no. office. It would have been good if the ambassador and the station chief had given some more, let out a little more information to calm us no. down a bit. But they're extremely tight lipped. The State Department was monitoring Europe during the crisis and made similar observation to Ambassador Lumsden. As the crisis unfolded, Martha Mautner saw trouble with the Soviets over the missile crisis. 
even taking note of the larger implications for the Cold War. Well, we were in INR at the time, again, were the intelligence coordinators on this, and all of the information was intelligence. It was all seeing traffic coming in, spotting where they were going, what the missiles were, what the satellite stuff was showing, and anything you could pick up, the intercept bases on Soviet communication. Then we were up to our neck in that one, including the reporting that was coming out of Germany at the time. Again, rather interesting, and somebody's going to have to really research that, because there were a lot of stories we had gotten that the Soviets were rolling out petroleum pole lines there in anticipation of activity at the time of the crisis. Activity that around, say, Berlin? or Yeah, well, yes. of course around Berlin and East Germany. The idea, those of us who were on the familiar with the German scene were always convinced that the Cuban Missile Crisis had very little to do with Cuba. It was a Khrushchev attempt to create a military equation which would allow him to put pressure on us to force negotiations on the Berlin scene. Quite turn out that way, but they were prepared to exploit it because obviously if they had once got those missiles in there, they would have leverage against us. The idea that they would use those to attack the United States to save Cuba was absurd. In the United Kingdom, our U.S. diplomats felt the political tensions of our involvement abroad. There was opposition to the United States' position abroad in Cuba and Vietnam. During the missile crisis, demonstrators gathered outside the embassy in London and cried out, hands off Cuba. Here is James T. Pettis Jr., split with an actor's voice, recalling one afternoon of large public demonstrations. The labor rights would, uh, I remember Grosvenor Square, would get to be filled with tens of thousands of chanting demonstrators. Hands off Cuba! Hands off Cuba! And the police were around there with their horses. They were pretty worried that they might get into the embassy sometimes. In fact, we had barbed wire in the embassy at times. This was before the days that they had the armored doors. They were heavy, but they weren't the bulletproof glass. They broke windows all over the place. On the afternoon of the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Poltava was steaming towards Havana, Grosvenor Square was filled with 10,000 rioters, I was having my fortnightly lunch with my Russian counterpart down in Soho, and I had to get out of the back door of the embassy and go up towards Park Lane, finally get the underground to go down to Soho to meet with this guy, a man named Vladimir Stenin. Stenin and I had lunch every two weeks, and we used to sit there and discuss the policies of the world. So when I got to this time, why the demonstration, he more or less said, You have a little problem, Jim. I said, Yes, we all have got problems, Vladimir. You know, Stenin, we're both pretty dumb about Cuba. And he says, Hey, Jim, what is this dumb? Why do you say we're both dumb about Cuba? And I said, Vladimir, the United States had the Bay of Pigs in Cuba, and now you are going to send these missiles into Cuba. You've got just as much of a problem as we've got with the Bay of Pigs. So he began to think, and he said, Yes, we got some trouble. So we had another drink. Then we had some more drinks. By the time I got back to the embassy at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I couldn't hit the floor with my hat. But the Russians, I think, had a good idea that everybody had a big problem with Cuba. Later, of course, the Poltava turned back, and the thing was over with. Stenin was a character whom I don't know whatever happened to him, but I don't think it was terribly... You could talk to him. I was working on him to try and get them to jump, maybe. Towards the end of the confrontation, a proposal of peace came from the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. 
It was understood by William McCarthy that Khrushchev's correspondence carried two very different sentiments. Here is William McCarthy discussing his views of the resolution letter and what those two sides were. A letter from Khrushchev came in a day or so before the resolution. I understand a two-sided letter, one side saying, you know, our man of peace, we don't want war, and the other side saying, we'll blow you out of the universe. Hillsman said, let's try the trolley ploy. She worked in the street, and a man comes down and says, can I go with you to your room? And she says, I accept your proposition of marriage. Mm -hmm. Considered an honorable approach. Yeah. And he said, answer only the side to Khrushchev that says he wants to be a man of peace. Khrushchev's letter was essential to ending the crisis off the coast of Cuba. However, there was a second letter from Soviet Politburo which implied that Khrushchev lacked power over the situation. Here is Ambassador Leonard Meeker on the differentiation between the two Soviet letters and what they meant to the crisis overall. The 27th was in many ways a, a crucial day. That morning, there began arriving from Moscow a message from Khrushchev to the president, a message which gave all the signs of having been written by Khrushchev himself and which appeared to concede that the USSR would unconditionally remove the missiles from Cuba. After the arrival of this message, there came another one which appeared to be much more institutional and bureaucratic, and which people believed must have come out of the Politburo, or the Foreign Ministry, or both, which in effect said that the missiles could be removed, but subject to certain conditions as to actions which the U.S. would have to take. There was naturally discussion within the government at that time as to whether Khrushchev was losing control of the situation and how to respond in the face of these two somewhat differing messages. Well, the decision that was made was simply to act as if only message number one had been received and a reply was sent out which specifically and expressly accepted what the Soviets had said personal message, and the other one was ignored. Following the resolution, it was time to move forward from the crisis. Instead of claiming the victory over Khrushchev, President Kennedy showed consideration for the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. President Kennedy had very definite views about this. He understood that an important moment in history had passed, that the U.S. had secured its objective of removing the missiles from Cuba, and he was also very concerned not to seem to crow over the victory, not to make matters more difficult for Khrushchev, or to appear to humiliate the Soviet Union in the eyes of the world any more than the facts already made it appear humiliated. He gave directions all down the line that people in the U.S. government would treat this 
as a very serious international crisis, which had been settled through careful, thoughtful negotiation. And he wanted no one to uh, boast or brag that the U.S. had threatened its nuclear power against the Soviet Union and had forced the USSR to bow to the American will. I think it was really this experience which for the first time began to motivate Jack Kennedy to feel that something needed to be done to arrange for a better and more stable relationship between the U.S. and USSR. I think he saw very clearly what could happen if a crisis got out of control, if nuclear weapons were to be used, and if a general nuclear exchange were to take place. He was the father of young children, and I think he thought of what would happen to them and to the world if there were a nuclear war. Under the leadership of President Kennedy, the United States was able to resolve the situation in Cuba and prevent the outbreak of nuclear war. Ambassador Leonard Meeker highlighted Kennedy's understanding of what an all-out nuclear war would entail, how it would affect not only his family and his country, but to the people of the world as well. Khrushchev and Kennedy both made efforts to de-escalate tensions moving forward. Though political interest in each nation acted against their leaders' efforts, Though it was not publicly known at the time, Kennedy agreed to the removal of Jupiter IRBMs that were stationed in Italy and Turkey as both a gesture of goodwill and a step toward proper de-escalation. This was an important moment in building relations between the United States and Soviet Union, one that in spite of raised tensions, found the means to resolve problems through diplomacy. The Cuban Missile Crisis formed the height of Cold War tensions, it was the greatest challenge to U.S. foreign policy of containment thus far. Despite changes in leadership and foreign policy, the United States continued its pursuit of containment of the spread of communism. As a result, the United States' security interests would shift their focus to Southeast Asia, where they would spend nearly two decades in Vietnam. Thank you for listening. If you like this presentation and are curious to learn more about diplomats and diplomacy, or listen to additional episodes in our Cold War History series, visit our website at adst.org or check us out on Twitter and Facebook. The interviews used in this podcast are drawn from ADST's Foreign Affairs Oral History Collection. Our theme music is by Antonio Vivaldi. Our executive producer is James Fowler. This episode was researched and written by Derek Gutierrez and Randy Schmidt. Derek Gutierrez and James Fowler provided our audio engineering and production. The actor's voice was recorded by James Fowler. My name is Samaya Ishrat. Until next time. <laughs>